What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Different Lights Podcast. This is a podcast about people with disabilities or people with differences and the challenges and triumphs they experience. In this episode, host Alan Galan interviews Wendy Liu. Wendy's a journalist and an editor at the Huffington Post. They talk about Wendy's career in journalism, how she got into disability reporting, and they also talk about dating with a disability. And they talk about how the pandemic has hit the disability community particularly hard and how it's also suddenly given many people access to services they never had before. Different Lights is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with Ability Media. I'm David DeRoche, Director of Community Programming at the University. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Wendy Liu. I, uh, I'm 28 years old. I grew up, uh, well, I was born in Georgia, and then I grew up in Boston and uh, North Carolina. Um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill um, for undergrad, and I studied journalism and psychology there. Um, and then after UNC, I went to Columbia University for um, to get my master's degree in journalism as well. So um, yeah, and now I'm an editor at Outpost. That is very impressive, I have to say. Um, so how did you get into psychology? Like, well, it's funny because I when people ask how I got into journalism, I say I always wanted to be a journalist, which is true. But um, there was like you know a time where I also tried to like be I tried to go into psychology as a career like become a therapist and also I was um pre-med for like one semester (laughs) to see if I could do it and I definitely could not I got like a I got like a 41 on my first chem 101 test and I was like nope I am out of here um and so but my my heart also wasn't totally into it right so like I knew that I always just wanted to be a journalist and um I but I did enjoy my solid my psychology classes it they were just I don't know really fascinating and um I think also it helped me learn a lot more about like you know like psychology of the mind and I think to an extent that has also helped me with uh with journalism as well just like interviews and interacting with people better understanding where others come from and um you know what they might be thinking in a given situation. So um, yeah, I, I'm glad I double majored in journalism and psychology. I love it. Yeah, I did something very funny. I was in, um, I studied marketing, but I also was into entertainment and singing and doing all that. Mm-hmm. So I had like a, a, a huge mix, like so I can end up doing anything, but it, it's weird how you find your way, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so how old, how did you learn to navigate the world with like communicating when you, like with your obstacles that you faced? I, I, when you say obstacles, I'm assuming, are you talking about my disability or just? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, the obstacles that I faced, uh, especially when it came to like communicating with people, I think it would, I would say it's less like my disability was the obstacle and more just like, especially growing up, just lack of understanding. And um, I mean, some of that is, you know, when you're growing up with a disability, a lot of children just like don't really know, like, uh, oh, like what's on your neck. Um, and I guess I haven't mentioned yet. I, I have a tracheostomy tube. It helps me breathe. Um, and so, and I've had it my whole life. So I guess growing up, um, you know, there's just, I always had a nurse with me, which, uh, you know, 
Um, I, I was very close with a lot of my nurses, but you know, when you go to school with a nurse, it, it can raise a lot of like questions with kids and, um, and even when I didn't have a nurse, like when I grew up, you know, I would sometimes like, you know, I would be walking down the street or, you know, just on, on campus or wherever. And, um, people would just like come up to me and ask like, what's that on your neck? Or, you know, they would take my hand and suddenly like, be like, I'm going to say a prayer for you. And, you know, prayer is fine, but I know I'm good. (laughs) You know, I I don't need the prayer. It's okay. Um, And so just like growing up with people, a, a lot of people making assumptions or, you know, assuming automatically that my disability is a negative thing. I think that's a big thing is like, you know, when people come up to me and they're like, I'm so sorry, or say like, you're so brave. And those sound nice, but the reality is that, you know, if you don't know anything else else about me, except the fact that I have a disability and like, you know, just having a disability doesn't make you, you know, inspirational or brave. Like you can be those things, but like, I just viewing disability as like, I mean, like automatically as like, a negative thing or something that is an obstacle like that in itself you know it could come with obstacles but like i think oftentimes a lot of the obstacles that disabled people experience come from the fact that we're living in a society that you know i uh, has a lot of ableism and does you know is not accessible to you know people like us yeah. So was there anything that you ever said any t- to anybody to maybe change somebody's viewpoint or perception when they did come up to you? Or? Yeah, I think most of the time, especially when I was young, like I, yeah, it's, it's also very tiring to like constantly try to correct people. And so I think sometimes when I was just tired of it, I'd be like, okay, thanks, you know, yeah, yeah. just kind of like skirt around it. I, you know, as I grew up and I got a little bit more impatient, I think I'd be like, oh, that's okay. You don't need to pray or like, don't be, don't feel sorry for me. Or, you know, I think sometimes when people are rude, because uh, I also get people who like, you know, on the train are just like staring at me and not, not in like a subtle way. They would literally just like stare at me, at, you know, like I was in a zoo basically. And so I remember you know whenever those whenever that happened I would actually just like lean forward and intentionally stare back so that they know that they're being really awkward um uh that, that that's always been in New York so I think when I when I moved to New York City I um became a lot more like you know like forward and just kind of outright being like uh you're being a little bit rude so it's a little more blunt so um and I think I think now I, um, it just kind of depends on like, if I feel like the other person doesn't know any better or, you know, if they, if they should know better, um, it just kind of depends on the situation. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that like, sometimes some people don't even realize what they're doing. I love the way you approach life. I just wanted to, what has encouraged you given what you've 
been through and all your experiences in life, what gave you the drive to advocate with people with disabilities or challenges? So after I went to journalism school at Columbia, I think by that point, I did know that I wanted to report on disability. Um, you know, it was something that was really important to me, both personally and professionally. Um, but then it, I think uh, when I started actually writing about disability, it was when I was uh, working at bustle.com, which is an online millennial news website. Um, uh, uh, at the time, like they were really big on just like making sure to have enough coverage of people from marginalized groups. Um, and they had done, you know, a little bit of disability. It was more about like focusing on mental health. And so um, when I was working there, my editor knew that I was pretty outspoken when it already, when it comes to disability already. And so she was like, hey, Wendy, like, I know that you're really, you know, passionate about disability and, um, uh, you know, would you be interested in writing some personal essays about, you know, being disabled? Um, and she wasn't like pressuring at all. Like, you know, she was like, if not, that's totally fine. Um, but I was like, okay, sure. Yeah. And so I started writing about, I started out writing about personal essays about myself because that's sort of like the voicey format that Bustle often took with their pieces. Um, and then I noticed that like those pieces were the ones that uh, of my of mine that got the most traction and was the most like exciting to people. And um, a lot of people related to my to my experiences and would like write me DMs and on social media like reach out to me and um and then I think that told me two things it's only one um disability is something that's not covered enough um uh like there's a gap there's a gap um uh of disability coverage but also two it showed me that there are, there are so many people out there that want to read these stories that um you know find find them like like they help them feel less alone in the, the in their experiences and so I just found that really powerful and um and then from there I start that disability sort of became my beat um and I would also say like dis disability across other sections too so a lot of people assume that disability specifically means covering healthcare, um but in reality there's a disability angle in every story whether you're talking about sports or education or celebrity culture or you know what whatever it might be um uh disability should be covered in every news section so um yeah and since then like i've uh this is like i said this has become sort of my my focus um it's not the only thing that i cover but it is sort of the the niche that i've honed for myself um and i'm I'm really proud of that. Well, you should be very proud. So what else do you cover? So I, I'm Chinese American. So more and more the last couple of years, I've been covering a lot more when it comes to API culture. So like Asian American Pacific Islander culture, although I'm not Pacific Islander, I'm Chinese American. So, um, uh, you know, for example, like uh, with the pandemic, when it first broke out and there was a lot of um, racism and xenophobia uh, uh, directed at Asian Asian people, um, AAPI folks, I, 
I did a piece on how um, AAPI, the AAPI communities were sort of turning to art toward art and storytelling to sort of help heal themselves and heal each other from, you know, a lot of the like really horrible times that were happening and continue to happen today. So I spoke with, um, you know, authors, filmmakers, uh, just all different artists to talk about like the the narr- how they're using their artwork and their skills to sort of change those narratives. Um, and not just for like non-AAPI people, but like for themselves uh, to really use art and storytelling to, to heal themselves. So besides AAPI culture, AAPI politics and culture, I also write about uh, just relationships. I write about um, LGBTQ culture. Um, I've written about books, like the books industry, the books world. So a lot of times those will sort of intersect with disability. Like I, I wrote a piece on disabled Asian Americans and sort of that intersection between being disabled and being Asian, you know, coming from immigrant families, what that's like. So disability still intersects with a lot of it, but it's it's not the only thing I, I cover. So how has it been for you with dating and everything? Like, has it been a challenge? Not not really. So I've been in the same relationship for eight years now. Um, so I, I've had, like, my, my partner and I've been together for a long time. So well, congratulations. But, oh, thank yeah. you. Um, so we met in college and so we, he's always been like super supportive and understanding and like, you know, doesn't care about me despite my disability, but in part because of, and I think that's really important when it comes to, you know, dating in general. Um, but also when you're dating with a disability, uh, I think oftentimes either, you know, some people you date might be like, like oh, I just pretend it's not there um, or it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, and that that sounds like a compliment, but at least to me personally, it's important that the person I date acknowledges my disability, you know, it doesn't just pretend it doesn't exist because it very much exists. It's a, a, part, a core part of who I am. And so anybody that I date would have, would like, you know, would need to, get that I think so yeah I guess that hasn't really been an issue for me so that's good yeah so I saw that for your master project Mm -hmm. on navigating the dating world uh for women with disabilities Mm -hmm. what are some points from it what advice would you give um, to individuals out there with differences or with a disability or someone in your shoes yeah so I um published that uh December 2016 so it's been a little while but um that that was my for that was my master's project that I did at Columbia and then I published it um with the with the times and um that was like my first big major project when it comes to disability disability reporting um and so basically I I actually traveled to a few different states to spend weeks at a time with uh, said the women that I spoke with. And um, uh, they all had muscular dystrophy or some form of MD. And um, so it was a physical disability and they were different ages. And 
I just spent a lot of time with them and with their families, their friends to really get a good look at like what navigating the dating world is like for them. Um, and some of them, uh, one of them uh, showed me like her, her dating apps and the fact that like so many people would ask her just like blunt questions about, um, you know, like, like cause she uses a wheelchair and this guy was like, so can I think they might have used emojis or something, but he was like implying, like, can you, so can you do it? Can you have sex? And I, it's just like, okay, that is the first question you ask. And two, like, making a lot of assumptions. And I don't know, she, it was just, she had to navigate a lot of those kinds of messages um, that, like, can be really off putting, um, either off putting or just like, I mean, a lot of them are also funny. Like, remember, like, she laughed a lot at, at a lot of them, too. But, like, it just, online dating is just a whole different, whole different piece. Oh, definitely. Um, it definitely is a yeah. different angle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, another aspect, I think, of um, dating with a disability that came up because uh, one of the women that I spoke with opened up about it. It wasn't something that... I expected was going to be part of the piece but you know I was profiling these women and so I really wanted to do justice to their stories so um one of them opened up about being in an abusive relationship and so um a, a significant part of the piece also focused on that and how you know there's a lot of like abuse tactics that can go into you know when you're um, in an abusive, interabled relationship where someone is disabled, the other person is not, um, and just like how much, um, how like difficult is like such an understatement, but like what, like how trapped, literally, physically and emotionally, someone can feel when they're in an abusive relationship and how like um, disabled women are uh, a lot very much um a lot more vulnerable to that uh to to that and so that was a big part of the piece and you know it, it required a balance between like doing those stories justice um making sure that a like a significant part of the piece um talked about that but not letting it be the whole piece because dating with a disability is so that's like there's so much to it um you know it just required uh, a lot of time, like thinking, editing. I've I had so many, no, so many pages of notes. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, I, it it's one of the the pieces that I'm like just most fond. I'm the fondest of because it was my, essentially my first big, widely published piece. So I guess, how do you feel about using the word? or labeling people with the word disability? Like, does it bother you or? Um, no, so I so I would preface this with saying like everybody's different. You know, some people prefer the word disability or disabled, other people um, do not. And there may be a variety of reasons why, you know, if they've grown up in a place that, you know, has been really ableist toward them and they've harbored a lot of internalized, you know, ableism toward themselves and everything, they may not, feel comfortable kind of claiming the word disabled and 
and that's totally fine and understandable. It's it depends on the person. Um, I personally am really proud to be a disabled woman. I don't think it's a negative word or a negative term. Um, I this is sort of something that like I again depends on the person. So I use both person first and identity first language. So person first is you put the person before the disability. So like people with disabilities, whereas identity first language is where it's disabled people. And again, people have different feelings about what they personally prefer. Um, I use them interchangeably, both in my writing and when referring to myself. Like I said, like disability is what it is. It's what I have. It's you know, it's how I identify. And so I personally think using euphemisms like special needs or different abilities or handicap, those are all kind of dancing around the word. Um, Especially, you know, like, I don't know, a lot of them can be a little bit condescending or, you know, it's like trying to like, I don't know, it's trying to make something less, uh, less uncomfortable when in reality, like, to me, I think special needs is both very, you know, awkward because it's like it's not a special need and to, to like require accommodations, for example, you know, like like our need for accessibility for accommodations are not special needs. They are a human right. They're, you know, like protected under the law. And so like I think the word special need is kind of a misnomer in that sense. So um, but yes, like disability is, is the word that I identify with the most. Well, that's great. And so in this lifetime, what are like the three um, most important messages you'd like to leave behind? Um, I'd say I think to people who acquire disabilities in their life, because, you know, some people have congenital disabilities like me that have been disabled their whole life. Um, but also there are people who acquire them you know, later on in life, like as grownups, for example. Um, and I think to people who acquire disabilities, I think oftentimes their journeys end up being very lonely because they don't realize that there's a whole community out there of disabled people who are ready to be supportive and to welcome you to, you know, the disability community. So I would, I guess I would say for them, like, it's going to be okay. You know, there, there is a whole community of people, you know, with your specific disability and, you know, maybe not the exact same experience, but know what it's like and understand like acquiring a disability can be a lonely or even a, a scary process. Um, and there, there is support for you. And, you know, a lot of times, like it depends on the person, but it's going to be okay. It's, it's a, it's not a shameful thing to be disabled. And then, um, and then I, I'm trying to think like two other messages. Like, uh, <laughs> I think I have a lot of gratitude toward um, the, the people in the disability community, like the disability activists that I've gotten to know over the years, like Emily Liddell, Alice Wong, um, Imani Barberin, just like a lot of people and Rebecca Coakley, just a lot of people in the disability community that that I've learned a lot from. I uh, just, uh, you know, I I think I've mostly learned from them like through Twitter or 
through the online communities that disabled people have um, carved out for themselves. And I just so much of my work and like what I do, what um, what I've learned over the years is because of the education that that the disabled um, that disability activists have done over the years. And it's um, and it's a culmination of decades of of work. Um, you know, I, in the past year, like when I was watching Crip Camp, uh, the Netflix documentary that um, was executive produced by the Obamas uh, about the birth of the disability rights movement, essentially, um, that that documentary that documentary just was amazing because it showed, it gave me like a sense of, um, I mean, I already felt like, you know, I already had an identity with my disability, but this was like a whole other level of feeling of pride and feeling of community and belonging and like looking at so many um, uh, disabled activists from the 70s and 80s who, um, you know, like put their their bodies on the line to get the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act signed to, you know, um, the 504 sit-ins, just like so many um, aspects of the disability rights movement, I just would want to just express a lot of gratitude toward, toward the people who um, have been leading the disability rights movement. I guess that's too much. I don't know. That's yeah. Really that is perfect. That's like above and beyond. So, <laughs> And then, so I guess another question I had was, so during this pandemic, I guess how has your perception changed of light and if so um has there any been been any specific challenges or concerns too during the pandemic yeah um i guess like i can start like generally and then become more you know about like my personal life i guess um more generally i think the pandemic has really brought to light a lot of issues that have been existing for a long time specifically with people with disabilities. Um, we've seen the fact that uh, black and brown disabled people have been dying at disproportionate rates due to the coronavirus. Um, we've seen we've seen a lot of like indicators of who is valued in society. Um, and it just makes me think of like healthcare rationing where, um, you know, in areas where there isn't, there aren't enough um, hospital beds or not enough uh, treatment or medical uh, ventilators, what, whatever it might be. Like um, a lot of research has shown that disabled people end up being moved to the back of the line. Like once a medical uh, healthcare providers have to start rationing supplies and they have to make decisions about essentially about who gets to live or die. A lot of times people with disabilities are the ones who get the short end of the stick, um, which is very problematic in so many ways um, and discriminatory, frankly. And so that's something that's been a really grim aspect of the pandemic. Um, and it's just, I, I don't think there's been enough reporting on it. Um, that's one thing. And, and two, you know, it's, that's just been a very difficult part of it. It's just like, no, like knowing which, lives are prioritized um it's just a very it's been a really difficult part of the pandemic uh to say the least and then um 
Yeah. And I think we've also seen, you know, the fact that everything has become suddenly a little bit more accessible and a little bit more like flexible, especially when it comes to working from home. Um, And a lot of accommodations that actually people with disabilities have been fighting for, for since the beginning of time, Um, especially with work from home policies, you know, a lot of disabled people feel like, you know, they, they've, they've always been met with a lot of resistance. Anytime that they ask for accommodations, uh, it's, it's a struggle because, you know, they have to prove their disability. They have to do this and that even to just get accommodations that again are afforded under the ADA. Um, and so suddenly like now with the pandemic, because everybody is having to like be flexible and work from home and stuff like suddenly all these things are available and so again it's kind of like this thing of like a lot of disabled people were talking about how making workplaces more accessible and flexible is a good thing like but then suddenly because a lot of non-disabled people um, are having to have these accommodations suddenly it feels more acceptable um so for me personally um I think I've learned to slow down a lot and prioritize myself. I think, um, you know, before the pandemic, I kind of threw myself all into just work. And um, I, uh, I mean, I made friends, I made time with friends and everything. But I think I, I didn't prior, I didn't prioritize, like, if I needed time for myself, if I needed mental health day, I would just kind of push through it instead of asking for time off. Or, um, uh, you know, like, I think now I, I spend a lot more time doing things that I actually enjoy. Uh, I mean, of course, I enjoy my work. I love my work. Um, but there are also other interests that I have that, like, have nothing to do with, you know, work or showing that I'm really being really productive in public. Um, I think we tie health and work and productivity with our worth as human beings and that can be really difficult because like you start out doing something you really love but then if you start doing it for any other purpose like or you know it becomes public or whatever you start doing it as your work it's just difficult because then a lot a lot of the joy gets sucked out of simply just doing something because you want to or because you love it so um I think that's something that I've really learned to like slow down and and do more of it's things that I personally just really enjoy things that I prioritize like family for example that's a good thing you gotta prioritize family prioritize your life and just I guess uh enjoy the little moments that you Mm -hmm. have and because what before you know it life passes you and then you're like where did time go yeah yeah (laughs) so I guess to go into family um who Who's one person that has influenced your life? Oh, man, from my family. Um, I guess, uh, I mean, this is really, really hard, right? Like, uh, of course. Like, a few people. <clears throat> yeah, like, of course, my, my parents are an integral part of, like, the reason why I have been able to, like, get so far in life. Um, you know, the growing up, they, I mean, when I was growing up, they, um, you know, did everything for me in terms of like 
trying to not in terms of like physically doing everything for me. What I mean is, um, you know, advocating for me at school, making sure that I got the um, the like accommodations that I needed or making sure that I had home health care, um, you know, nurses who were able to like be with me, take care of me, uh, you know, fighting for my right to education, just like so many things, you know, even though we didn't really talk, you know, I didn't really know much about disability culture growing up um, or disability politics, any of that. Um, but, that you know, there was so much that now when I look back, everything that my parents did for me was was for me and to give me a chance at, at opportunities that everybody else gets to have so much easier, right? Yeah. Um, and to be successful. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah, I would say my parents. I love it. To wrap this up, is there any other advice or anything else you'd like to say or share? I guess if for anybody who is disabled and wants to be a journalist or I guess anybody with a disability who is like maybe struggling to figure out what they want to do or um, trying to break into an industry that's been, you know, not unkind to them or, you know, things like that. I, I guess I would say like, it sounds so cheesy, but I think one of the most important things is to believe in yourself and to um, not say no to yourself before others do. Uh, I think when I was starting out in journalism and, um, you know, after college and stuff, I one of the things that I feel like I did uh, that I wish I hadn't done as much was, you know, I uh, doubting myself a lot or like, you know, if I was wondering you know, should I, should I pitch to the New York Times or should I start out a little bit smaller? Like, can I even do this? And um, I feel like there are just so many barriers for disabled people already, um, especially disabled people of color. It's like, don't let yourself be one of those barriers. And so just just believe that you can do it. Um, know, know your worth. You know, always ask for more than is being offered to you. Like, negotiate pay rates um and um always follow up I because I I think that's something that I've also found a lot of like value in is if you follow up with people that you meet at networking events or just like after you work with an editor or a mentor or somebody like always follow up even if they don't get back to you at first like send them a reminder um and that can be the difference between like ending a conversation with you know someone who could be a make a big difference in your life and like and not so um yeah I think those are just like a few final tips that I would give to like anybody who's trying to start a career I love it and I so appreciate it and I'm happy that you got to interview with Ability Media and so I hope that um Maybe a lot of other people will definitely be inspired by your story. So thank you for joining us today. And I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Quinnipiac alum Alana Galan interviewing journalist Wendy Liu. Thanks so much for listening to episode two of Different Lights, a production of the Quinnipiac University podcast studio in partnership with Ability Media. For more information about the show, visit abilitymediagroup.com. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite app and check us out weekly as we continue these conversations about the intersection of identity and ability. Take care, y'all.